Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 77 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast. This is one of those weeks where I would love for you to jump over and listen to a Virtual Couch episode if you haven't done that before. I talk a lot about the concepts of what we do with discomfort. And I talk about memory and I talk about feelings and emotions and how we have a lot of them and why we assign such meaning to some and others. And it's a podcast that I've been working on for a little while, but especially the part about sitting with discomfort because those who are listening to this podcast are probably not not very big fans of uh, sitting with discomfort. And so when the emotionally immature narcissist in their lives applies that pressure or that discomfort, then it is the pathologically kind person that is often going to acquiesce or give in or caretake or do whatever they can to get rid of that discomfort, whether it's for them or for their kids. So I think that episode will resonate with a lot of people that come here and listen to this one. So let me share a story today. And this is based on, this is a little bit of a, I think the word that if I want to impress is an amalgamation of a few different tales, but you can say that it is one of those that is based around a true story. So, are based on true events. Is that better? Everything that I'm going to say is true, but it's been chopped and put together from a few different stories. So, I, I want to start with a little bit of a background. So, in, you know, I feel like this is where in the movies where I would say, in a world, which I hope that sounds good on the podcast as one of those, that, that guy that does the trailer voices. But I, I went a little overboard when I was starting to create the narrative because it really was in the quiet suburban neighborhood where John spent his adolescence. The walls of his home echoed with emotional neglect and the weight of unexpressed emotions. Both of his parents, and all the names, of course, have been changed, but his parents, Paul and Linda, they possessed emotionally immature behaviors and they exhibited basically narcissistic traits and some tendencies that those absolutely cast a shadow over John's formative years throughout his adolescence and into his teenager years. So at its core, their relationship was, it was this constant battle for dominance and, and attention and that left very little room for John's emotional well-being. He was not able to just do and be and express himself and figure out the things that he really wanted to do in life. His dad, Paul, was very charismatic, but very self-centered. And so those in the outside world, outside of Paul's home and outside of John's home, thought that Paul was this pretty amazing person. And Paul did get the validation outside of his house. He got it at work. He got it in his church community. But he was self-centered, and he always did seek this admiration from others. Now, Linda, his mom, was a beautiful woman, and she had a very strong sense of entitlement, but yet she continually needed this validation from others. And in order to get that validation, she had to put herself in this position of continually asking for people's validation. Do you think this looks good? How do you think this looks? Did you hear about this other person? Can you believe that they did that? You don't think I would ever do that, do you? And when Paul and Linda would talk, it was this, what I like to refer to a bit as the narcissist on narcissist crime, where they're both talking at each other. And actually, sometimes that seems to work. 
So this battle then, this battle for dominance and attention really did leave John feeling like his thoughts and opinions didn't matter. And he came home and would just quickly disappear into his room because he just didn't want to to deal with his parents because any interaction, he ended up feeling worse or feeling uh, less than. So now, um, amid their own self-centered pursuits, then Paul and Linda, they basically then disregarded John's emotional needs. They dismissed his struggles, his struggles with friendships and school. And what would that lead to? Well, in the words of Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, he would continually hear that his dad could have thrown a football all the way over that mountain because the conversations then would center around the parents' achievements and how they were able to figure it out when they were in school. And so he just needs to try harder. And if he would just listen to them and so on and so forth, to the point where he really did just feel like, what's the point? Why am I even trying to bring these things up? So any mention of John's emotions then was met with indifference or they would just change the topic. So John's attempts to express his feelings were continually met with this deflection or just honest to goodness dismissal. This was in days before cell phones, but I can only imagine that this was the dad looking at the paper or the mom going back into the kitchen to to grab something or looking at a magazine or watching TV, but it was not turning to their son, John, and saying, tell me more. What's that like? How can I help? So when he would, on occasion, share his hopes and his dreams, even his fears, his parents responded with belittling remarks, or they would change the subject, or again, continue to go back and talk about themselves. Because it was as if his emotions were basically an inconvenience to their own agendas, which they were, and then they also made them feel bad because they couldn't believe that their kid wasn't thriving because that's not who they were. So he was, in essence, embarrassing them if, if they were out in public. But John yearned for a connection and he wanted validation and he did find some solace in retreating into his own world. He loved to read. He loved books. He loved music. He loved creative outlets that allowed him to explore his emotions and that he never could express those openly. So in the safety of his room and more importantly in his imagination, he could explore the depth of his feelings without fear of judgment or rejection. But eventually that emotional neglect took its toll on John and it left him feeling absolutely unheard and invalidated. He started to internalize this belief that his emotions were trivial, that he was unworthy of attention or even being understood. So this absence of healthy emotional models made it really difficult for him to comprehend the nuances of his own feelings, and that deepened his sense of of isolation. So even as he really wanted and yearned for empathy and connection, he found himself drawn to those relationships that echoed the patterns of his childhood home. So unconsciously, He was seeking what was familiar, and he started gravitating toward people. He started dating partners who more or less mirrored the emotional neglect and those narcissistic tendencies that he had grown up with, that he became okay with breadcrumbing. He became okay with somebody just completely dismissing him and then coming back into the scene as if nothing had ever happened. And this is going to end up being something that is going to go on for years and years with John. So in comes Sarah. And with Sarah, she was everything that John thought that he wanted because she did act confident and she seemed to to say all the right things to make John feel like he was heard and that he was understood. So as John ventured into adulthood and meeting Sarah and carrying these wounds from his upbringing, then he was drawn to people that just mirrored these dynamics over and over again. And Sarah Now, she had her own narcissistic traits. And so, 
At first, John found Sarah's confidence and seemingly strong personality absolutely appealing. He was drawn there because he mistook her self-centeredness for assertiveness, and he mistook her manipulation for strength. So in this twisted way, her behavior resonated with the familiar patterns that he had experienced growing up. So within the relationship, John's subconscious desire for validation and acceptance, now it kept him anchored. He was locked in. So despite the emotional abuse that he continued to endure, he believed that if he could win Sarah's love and approval, then it would heal the wounds of his past. That it would validate his own worthiness. And if he couldn't do that, then something really must be wrong with him because then it would be his own parents that he, he couldn't get to love him. And now if he can't get his wife to love him, then it must be him. But then leaving the relationship felt insurmountable because it meant confronting this deeply ingrained belief that he is undeserving of love and of support. So this familiarity of the whole toxic dynamic, then that also then plays a role because it reinforces this narrative that he grew up with, that love is conditional and that his needs are unimportant. And additionally, the absence of healthy emotional models in his childhood, then those leave John ill-equipped to recognize this toxicity and, and even to try to navigate a way out. Even when he started meeting with a therapist and listening to podcasts and finding out more, then his default setting was, yeah, but it's got to be me. And why can't I get this person to understand? Why won't she get the aha moment? Why can't I convince her to love me, to choose me? When in reality... We, we are just, if we are just being and doing and we are okay, then we know that, yeah, we aren't perfect, but we're enough. We're enough as we are and that we shouldn't have to convince somebody that we're lovable. We are lovable. We come from the factory as being lovable. But then when he was never seen that as a, as a child, wasn't modeled that, never felt that, then of course he's going to fall into these familiar patterns. So he had this absence of these healthy emotional models. So he just didn't feel like he had any chance to get out, even though now he was starting to, to waken up to the narcissism or the emotional immaturity in his wife. And as he was doing that, he, he became even more uncomfortable. And so then he would even withdraw more because he struggled to identify his own emotions or set boundaries or prioritize his well-being as he was never taught these essential skills. So... I mean, understanding a little bit about John's backstory, I think, can start to shed light on his attraction to Sarah and then this difficulty that he faces when he's starting to wake up to the toxicity in the relationship and even starting to contemplate leaving the relationship because this emphasizes this need for healing and self-discovery because John's going to have to learn to break free from these cycles of his past and then develop healthier patterns of emotional expression and self-worth. And you can start to see how difficult it is when you lay out the, all the things that brought him into this relationship. So now let's talk a little bit about, the, about their marriage. John was considered a caring and devoted husband. And at this point, he had been married to Sarah for several years. So from the outside, their relationship appeared picture perfect. But beneath the surface, there was this, again, toxic dynamic. And it was slowly eroding John's self-esteem and emotional well-being. He really felt like he was dying inside and his body was actually telling him, yeah, I think you are because he would go from these periods of feeling that, hey, things are okay and I can do it to just feeling intense fatigue. And he started to experience this feeling that you see so often where first he had a lot of signs of anxiety and then he went into depression. And then, and this is the part that starts to break my heart because I hear this in, in my office on a regular basis, but he started thinking, you know what? I just, I hope I get some sort of disease. I really do because then Maybe I'll get a break. And actually then, maybe Sarah would actually stop long enough to care. But 
from there, not still getting those needs met, what happened next is I do unfortunately call it the, you know, I don't even care if I get hit by a meteor when I'm just walking around. And I think the people that are listening to Waking Up the Narcissism will will understand that while that might sound pretty dramatic, that that is absolutely the way that a lot of people start to feel. They come in and they tell me, I'm not saying I want to kill myself. I'm not having you know suicidal thoughts or ideations, but sometimes I just don't want to be here. And then that is on that road to people starting to feel like it just doesn't matter and I don't want to be here and I am starting to think or have these suicidal thoughts and ideations. And this is where I want to go so big and say the brain, it is a don't get killed device. The last thing that your brain wants to do is stop existing. So it's going to try some anxiety. Hey, here's a little warning, a little heads up. We want to protect you. And if that doesn't really work, then it might move on into some depression. You know, let's just really start to shut down. Let's flatten that affect and let's just feel like, let's sleep this one off. Maybe it's going to be better tomorrow. And then if you still don't take action and you're still in the same environment, then your brain can start to say, okay, all right, I've tried those. Let's just start to throw a little bit of hopelessness and helplessness in there. And yeah, what would it feel like if I got some terminal disease? Because then maybe I, maybe people would would stop expecting everything of me or, or putting things on me or dumping their trauma on me. Or I wouldn't have to then manage my, my spouse's emotions and, and buffer for the kids. And then that starts to get people to this place of just feeling like, I don't even care. Where's that meteor to eventually the feeling of having suicidal thoughts or ideations. And again, knowing that, and, and I base this off of that study of the people that had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and the ones that have actually survived, the ones that, that did and let go, that then when they did that, that wasn't a feeling of, okay, good. It was like, oh my gosh, what did I do? So the brain, again, it is a don't get killed device. It does not want you to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. It wants you to live. But if you're not paying attention, it's going to start doing some things that are going to try to get your attention, even to the point of having chronic pain or fatigue or high blood pressure, hypertension, all the way up to, I mean, heaven forbid you do get a stroke because at that point then, yeah, it is going to say, we are going to sit this out if you don't do something. So back to John and Sarah. So then he was, while he appeared to be good on the surface, it was eroding his self-esteem, his emotional well-being. He was not thriving. He was not letting his light so shine so that it would lift others around him, especially his kids. And John had a lot of amazing talents and abilities. Go back to earlier in the story. He was very creative with music, with art, with drawing. He could, he could tell quite a story. He was an amazing teacher and could motivate people. But then Sarah, if I go back and say she possessed all the classic traits of a narcissist or somebody that was very emotionally immature. She had this insatiable need for admiration, then this constant belittling of John, and it would make him question his own self-worth. And she would rarely, well, actually, in the, in the, in the, all of the parts of the story that were Frankenstein into this one, the Sarahs never took ownership or accountability of anything. They couldn't. It was never their fault. There was always a, a yeah, but. And the part that was difficult for John was even the help that he was getting from the mental health field and from the, the Switzerland friends around him were also making him feel like he still was the problem. And that was just so difficult for him. But leaving the relationship seemed like an insurmountable task. And again, why? Because we've already laid out what that background looks like. So gaslighting, manipulation, those became Sarah's weapons of choice. And whenever John tried to address their issues, 
She skillfully distorted the truth, leaving him questioning his own sanity. And then she would downplay his concerns or twist his words, making him doubt the validity of his emotions. And this is where I want to add some context of why I laid out the story earlier of what it looked like in John's home, where he was just outright dismissed, or then he was one-upped, or his, his emotions and feelings were absolutely put to the side. Sarah would hear him, but then question his sanity and gaslight him. So, if you really step back and talking with the, the versions of John that I've talked to in my office, we've been able to identify that sometimes, though, they feel like, but, but it was better than my parents did, though, because at least she was listening to me. I just ended up feeling worse every time, where with my parents, I realized it just wasn't even worth trying. So, this, this sporadic affection that she bestowed upon him, it became this rare treasure, It's like a real treat. And I would hear these stories from all of the people that uh, represent John, where the people would say, no, but you know, there's, there's a lot of good times too. And so if you're trying to remember a handful of good times and the norm is the bad where you don't even want to exist, that is not a healthy relationship, but it kept him just yearning for more. He wanted more of that just sporadic affection. And this, this made the thought of a life without her just seem unimaginable even if it meant enduring emotional abuse, because he was really unwilling to admit that that is what he was experiencing was this emotional abuse. So the weight of the self-blame, the guilt, it started to press really heavily on John's shoulders. And Sarah was an expert at manipulation and it made him to believe that he was solely responsible for the cracks in their marriage. And then she would consistently criticize and blame shift. And this would continue to erode his self-confidence, leaving him convinced that he was the root cause of their problems. Because remembering that the narcissist or the emotionally immature, they excel at devaluing their partners. And Sarah was no exception. She demeaned his dreams, his aspirations. She made him doubt his own abilities. As a result, he feared that leaving the relationship would actually mean losing his own identity and giving up on the dreams that he held dear, even though he would, he would never be able to realize those dreams in this relationship. But despite that emotional turmoil, John continued to cling to hope. And as he continued to witness these moments of, of just fleeting kindness and affection from Sarah, it continued to fuel his belief that if he tried harder or if he changed himself, the relationship would improve. So aha moment after aha moment he sought. And that hope ended up becoming the barrier because that would blind him to the toxic patterns that had become their norm. And he was even getting to the point where when he learned about the concepts around confabulation or creating these narratives that trying to make sense of, of the crazy or the nonsense where he realized, wow, the, my own version of confabulation was that he was starting to confabulate that maybe it wasn't as bad in the past and maybe it was actually better than it really is. And maybe that's me just looking at the negative and just being mean, leaving a narcissistic relationship. If anyone is trying to do this, it's a, it's, it's an arduous journey. And as the psychological trauma inflicted by the narcissistic partner starts to become more and more overwhelming, that it really does take immense courage and support to break free from the clutches of a narcissistic trauma bond. And what I've been thinking about a lot, and a lot of this came even out of the virtual couch episode where I talked about this sitting with discomfort and having the courage to move forward, even the face and the face of all of this discomfort, inviting the discomfort to come along with you while you do difficult things, if they are things that matter to you. And knowing that as you start to move forward, that unfortunately, the more emotionally immature person is going to push bigger and bigger buttons because how dare you leave the enmeshment and codependency that they crave and need for their own supply? I mean, it's it's the air that they breathe. So even when somebody does start to 
find that courage and they start to to move away from this unhealthy relationship and and bring that discomfort along with them it's it's going to be a, a lot of new buttons being pressed and that can be really really difficult so john's story unfortunately whether we're talking about the the male or the female that is in the 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 trauma bonded partner's position those you can plug in either person and and see that that is an incredibly difficult thing to escape and what that causes is a lot of trauma so on today's episode i feel like i just did a 20 minute uh, a 20 minute intro but i'm going to spend a little bit of time now i want to read a story from the women's uh, facebook group and it is again just an incredible powerful but just difficult touching story that someone posted in there about what those effects or impact of trauma has been. And then we'll spend a little bit of time in an article off of Psychology Today that I think really talks about trauma well. So I got permission from the author to read this, so I'll just read it straight through. So December of 2018, while at work, my hearing faded, my eyesight went black, and I felt a really tingly sensation throughout my body. I freaked out a lot. My husband came and picked me up, and my parents met us at the doctor's office. My blood pressure was through the roof. I was moments away from a stroke, my doctor told me. He was shocked that I actually hadn't had one. And this was the start of two years of testing, changing medications over and over, not being able to stabilize my blood pressure. High blood pressure is a problem in in my family. So yes, part of this is hereditary. But however, the fact that the doctors could not stabilize me was very concerning. My husband told my kids how they were killing me and they needed to be nicer and they needed to do more around the house. But this infuriated me because no child should ever be told that they're killing their parent. And we would argue over this. So one day as we met with the cardiologist and he asked me, hey, what else is going on that you're not mentioning? There has to be a reason why we can't get you leveled out. I looked at my husband and I said, it's him. He's stressing me out more than anything in my life. My husband laughed and we moved on. Then 2019 and 2020 came and I worked on being actually able to walk from the bedroom to the kitchen without being winded. I worked on paying attention to what I was eating and drinking. I took things slower at work, so I didn't stress my body out. And of course, we also added COVID into the mix. Beginning of 2021, all three of my doctors were able to get me leveled out. But at this point, I was taking 10 different medications to stay that way. My home life wasn't getting any easier. It was in fact getting more difficult. And in 2021, I finally stood up for myself and I started going to therapy. I started working on my baseline, my emotional baseline, becoming stronger mentally and emotionally. I started the process of loving myself. I began reading books and listening to podcasts about narcissism and personality disorders. I started learning how to protect myself against the domestic abuse. It took me two years of getting stronger mentally, physically, and emotionally to walk away. I would hear over and over, the body keeps the score. And this is so true. Your body will deteriorate from stress and hurt. The last thing he said to me in January before I went no contact was, you are the crazy one. You're on 10 different medications and you're never going to be okay. You will always be the problem. Today, I had a doctor's appointment. This was just a week or so ago. And I have safely been off medication for three months. My levels are better than they've been in seven years. Has it been a really hard five months? Yes, it has been. But it's also been worth it to be here now. I've been doing a lot of individual and group therapy. I exercise with one of my kids daily. I eat better. I actually listen to my inner voice. I let myself cry and I feel all the feelings that I've shoved down for so long. I tell my friends when I'm struggling that I talk openly about what I've been through. I'm nervous about my future, but I'm still working toward it with hope and excitement. And I'm finding me and I'm loving me and I'm rekindling friendships that I had to stop having. I'm finding new ways to show love to myself 
and those around me. I am forgiving myself and I'm loving more. So that just shows how uh, big of an impact that that narcissistic emotional abuse can be on your central nervous system, on your body in general, and that so often when people get out of those unhealthy relationships, they do find that a lot of those physical ailments disappear. And again, when you look at this concept of the body keeps the score, I really feel like it is important to try and listen to your body because it, it really is never too late to finally say, all right, body, I see you. I will start listening. And if it is an upset stomach, if it is a, a heart palpitation, if it's a headache or a migraine, that one of the best things you can do is just check in and see, all right, what's going on? What's going on around me? Are there some some triggers that I wasn't even aware of? If I can reverse engineer whatever this moment is, I might be able to go back and see that, man, the kids just had to go over to the the more emotionally immature parents' house. And now all of a sudden I'm lonely and I I'm not used to being lonely and I find myself wanting to reach back out to the the narcissistic partner or there can be so many things. So first of all, if you can just take a look, thank your body, where are you feeling it and just sit with it, take it in for a moment and see if there are some, some signals or some cues or triggers that maybe led up to the way that you're feeling. So with that said, I'm going to spend the next part or the last part of this podcast episode um, reading a lot, but it's a really good article. It's by a, a clinical psychologist, a PhD named Christy Lee Hokenberger. So I'm going to just refer to her as, as Christy Lee. I don't know if that's what she goes by, but I don't want to keep butchering her last name, but it's from Psychology Today. And there's a subheading from, I don't know if this is something that she normally writes, but it says love in the age of narcissism, but it's on trauma. And the title of the article, and I'll have the, the article linked in the show notes, is remnants of abuse and manifestations of trauma. Narcissists create pits of quicksand in life, making it impossible to be free. And that pits of quicksand in life, I feel like that does paint quite a picture because if you think about a movie when you see one growing up and somebody's in the quicksand, that it just slowly starts to suck you under. And it's that concept where the more that you try to move, the more that you will be sucked under. So it's almost as if the more that you engage, the more that you are going to be drawn into the the, the trauma, the trauma bond, the narcissistic abuse. So she, Chrissy Lee lays out some concepts just around trauma in general. She says that humans are incredibly resilient and they do have the capacity to recover from almost anything, injuries, illnesses, car accidents, and other physical manifestations. And all of these things can heal with enough time and patience. Now, emotional and mental trauma, however, is invisible and it can be far more complicated to recuperate from because so often we can put on this just good face or front to the world and then everybody thinks we're okay and we try to continue to pretend that we're okay and hope that we'll just eventually feel okay, that things will just eventually get better. And one of the things that I think is just so important to talk about is is if you are just proverbially kicking the trauma can down the road and just saying, I'll be better later, I'll be better when, I'll be better when I have more time or when there's less things going on in my life, then in that scenario, then unfortunately, I feel like we're just kind of almost creating more more trauma by not giving yourself the, the grace or the tools to be able to start to heal or repair. She says, manifestations of mental trauma can be separated according to physical or emotional impact. Trauma is defined by the American Psychological Association as an emotional response to a terrible, shocking, or painful event. So no matter the type or significance, trauma lowers a person's feelings of trust, comfort, safety, and all those will result into higher levels of fear and worry. So as we go through these different trauma responses, and based on what what you bring to the table as well, your 
all of the nature and nurture and the birth order, the DNA, the, all of those things will also play a role in how you respond to different things, different trauma events. She goes on to say that safety is a paramount importance to a human being and a lack of safety triggers a response from our primal core to protect ourselves and, and protect those we love. The fight, flight, freeze reaction is triggered whenever we feel uneasy or suspicious or fearful. And then, but how we respond to these triggers purely individual, again, based on all the things that you bring to that table. So if you're talking about mental trauma, she says that it can be difficult to define because it can be made up of a lot of different circumstances and it can be a different, uh, a lot of different context. And so we often just talk about this mental trauma as an umbrella term, or uh, it's this collection of afflictions that encompasses physical and emotional manifestations. So reactions to trauma can include the medically recognized things such as depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD, and those, those conditions, then we can, we have a decent idea of how to at least start to treat them either individually as then, or maybe part of like a, an overall um, holistic plan. And, and that's where I like saying anxiety is, is there for a reason. It's there to warn you, although there's some there's some times where your brain is anxious and it's trying to protect you or warn you about things that are not necessarily as big of a threat as our brain may make it out to be. And that can be where trauma almost starts to, to layer upon itself. Or, you know, if I feel trauma about one thing, then, I, then I'm going to make this connection or assumption that then uh, this other thing is going to be something that I fear or worry about as well. She talks about the commonality and the uniqueness of trauma. So traumatic events, they're, I mean, they're really impossible to avoid and you never know when one is going to happen. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration reports that over half the population will experience some sort of traumatic event in their lives. But then I, we go back to what constitutes a traumatic event that's going to be up to the individual. And what might be something that is very traumatic to one person may not be the same to another. I, I was talking to somebody not too long ago that was watching, in essence, you know, the call of the wild, nature, and animals attacking each other and fighting to the death. And, and she really struggled in seeing that happen. And her husband, it wasn't, it didn't have as big of a negative impact. And so she was saying that that's really difficult. That can be really difficult for me. And it's hard for me to understand how that isn't something that is, is traumatic or significantly impactful to him. But then we kind of just sit back and we talk things through. And then if, you know, if this is oversimplifying it, but if he grew up on a farm and that was just part of what, what one did, then it can become pretty normal and wouldn't cause trauma. But if that's something that she's never seen, then she could have this just visceral reaction of feeling unsafe when these, these animals are, are fighting and, uh, and she feels unsafe and, and her own brain says, I don't want to see this. So that can be a traumatic event. Christy Lee gives the example of, a reaction of a bystander of a car accident compared to that of a surgeon or a first responder. So an EMT is familiar with the scene, but a college student is not. So the EMT will most likely not have lingering emotional trauma, but the college student may find himself suffering from insomnia or flashbacks. And I think about that because I work with clients that are first responders, and sometimes when they're when they're talking about what they stumble upon, I think over the years that it it I mean it's not that I 
can't wait to hear those stories. But part of, I think, even a job as a therapist is to hear stories all the time. And so you still have to check in and you notice that you have your own reactions around things, but it maybe isn't as traumatic as then when you tell somebody else. And this can even be in a lot of ways that may sound, I feel like, where other therapists might really understand where if I've dealt with dozens and dozens or hundreds and hundreds of people that have have been unfaithful, there's been infidelity, then when they're telling me, it's it's maybe the first time that they've been dealing with that, but I'm just grateful that the person feels safe enough or comfortable enough to share their story with me because I've worked with a lot of people that have, have gone through that. And so it isn't as traumatic where I think prior to being a therapist, it's it's like, man, you hear about that stuff in the movies or you might know of somebody that has, has been, there's been infidelity in the relationship and then it doesn't make sense. But then when you work with enough people over the years, then that uh, maybe isn't as traumatic than for somebody that's sitting in a therapist chair that hears that often. A lot of mental or emotional trauma is often associated with large-scale events. We're talking things like terrorist attacks, shootings, earthquakes, floods that are broadcasted and reported on TV or radio or things that you read on the internet, and they can just virally spread the coverage. And, and then the risks of emotional trauma can really spread across the world. And think about when you hear sometimes about mass shootings or if there are natural disasters where then it can be hard to not, if you hear about something that's happened in a school, to not then think of your own loved ones and and being in a school and all of a sudden feeling anxious or nervous. So those large scale events that aren't even happening to you or to anyone that you may even know can still be traumatic for some people when you even just hear about them. And then personally traumatizing events, then those are are going to be equally damaging, but then they may not be as widely recognized. And those, uh, Christy Lee says, these jarring and life-changing events include sexual assaults, accidents, cancer, emergency surgery, and domestic violence. And incidents that occur silently or behind closed doors are just as emotionally crippling as widespread events, and they should be recognized as such. So these widespread events that are broadcast then on the internet or TV have these just lasting negative impacts of trauma. But her point is that there are things happening every day that are happening behind closed doors that are happening in relationships that also have these same lingering negative effects that people are not even aware of. And I feel like so much of this does event, you know, boils down to the, we don't know what we don't know until we go through something. And, you know, I will always give the example of my daughter, Alex, getting in the car accident that we've talked about her last interview on the virtual couch a few months ago, was just, it's, I don't know, I felt like it was one of the most real and raw interviews I think I've ever heard. And even as somebody that, you know, I was there in, in that part of being her dad, but even just hearing what her experience was, was just, it's just overwhelming. It's incredible. And I know that, you know, not trying to make it about me on a narcissist podcast for sure, but the things that I, I experienced or went through from her accident, I would definitely consider to be traumatic. And then now when I have someone else that is talking about having somebody go through a traumatic car accident, then it's hard to not find yourself going back to that place and, and thinking about that. And, and so we just never really know how that trauma is going to show up. But now she starts moving into experiencing narcissistic trauma. So the experience of dealing with a narcissist can cause significant emotional trauma, and not just for the direct victim, but also for third parties, such as those closely involved with the victim. Because no matter the relationship with the victim, be it a friend or a partner or a parent, any type of emotional involvement will increase the risk of being affected. 
And this is that part where when you hear about the things like no contact, why it, it really does become really important because the more that you engage with the narcissist or the extremely emotionally immature, then it just is such a difficult concept at times to, to recognize that when I engage with them, then now, now we're in it. Now um, they're trying to take that one-up position or make me feel bad or just any engagement, then I don't walk away feeling like uh, a better person. I don't feel supported. I don't feel encouraged. And, and so then there's a lot of emotional calories or time and energy spent on trying to figure out what just happened. You know, what is wrong with me? And then you go and talk with somebody that is emotionally safe or mature, and then you just walk away feeling better or or feeling like, man, I, I want to know more about whatever it was we were talking about. So that narcissistic trauma can just eat you from the inside because it starts with that, what what is wrong with me? Why why is it so difficult to to express myself and why why can I talk about things with some people and but with this person it just doesn't go right and eventually it starts to make me feel really bad when I get around this person. And so even the most well-meaning and supportive individuals can fall victim and find themselves struggling with that psychological trauma of the narcissist. And uh, the signs of trauma are varied and they'll manifest in a lot of different ways depending on the situation and the individuals involved. So those that are attacked by narcissists will feel a variety of emotions and reactions that will continually reinforce that fight, flight, or freeze reaction until the point where at some point your visceral or gut reaction is going to be one where you aren't even aware that that it was happening, but you find yourself in this flat affect or or feeling nervous or already anticipating that things are not going to go well when you haven't even opened your mouth around the narcissist or the emotionally immature in your life. Chrissy Lee goes on to talk about the physical signs. So physical effects of trauma can manifest as a decline in health. And it occurs widely across the spectrum, like the story that I read or the opening story that headaches can vary from mild discomfort to paralyzing migraines and excessive fatigue. And I feel like that fatigue response is so, so common because I think it is this constant emotional churning of the mind and burning of these emotional calories, trying to figure out what is wrong with me or how do I make my point or, or why is this so difficult? But so then those those migraines or fatigue, and it can range from insomnia to even over, oversleeping. So you can have one uh, from one extreme to the other. And then other victims report increased substance abuse because we turn to substances or other unhealthy coping mechanisms when you start to feel discomfort. And that discomfort might be the why is it so difficult to get someone to to care or to hear me or to love me. And then there are often verbal outbursts, increased aggression, or the emergence of even things like uh, disordered eating. And talking about those verbal out outbursts, this is the thing, again, where it's, it's this considered reactive abuse or where because you have been gaslit, because you've been told that you're wrong for so long, because it is so difficult to make sense of things, then you will find yourself at times reacting in ways that you have never reacted before. You may yell, you may snap, you may shut down, you may become emotionally immature yourself in your response. But it's the reaction when that's where I want people to just check in with themselves and say, okay, do I go around yelling at people or do I shut down often when I'm around people that I, that I love or feel safe around? And the answer is going to be no. And so those are the, the things where the, you know, that's the physical signs of, of trauma that you are experiencing. She gave a couple of examples. She said, after Brie found out about her partner's infidelity and faced the abuse that she had tolerated over the years, she developed a severe eating disorder that led her to lose over 50 pounds in just a few months. She said it wasn't a conscious decision, nor was she unhappy with her weight. It didn't matter what you put in front of her. She said, I couldn't eat it. 
All I did was shake and cry. And then you can find other people that will then put on a lot of weight because all they want to do is comfort eat and not move. But if the trauma occurs in a physical place, such as a room or a specific location, then the victim might physically associate the trauma with the area and experience intense discomfort. Hot flashes, a racing pulse, lightheadedness, um, skin crawling, all of these things and more are the type of physical symptoms of trauma or with the memory of a trauma. She gave an example of a woman named Diane. Diane witnessed a verbal fight between a friend and her narcissistic ex and and became an unwilling participant in the fight. And I, I appreciate this comment. Maybe this is uh, dates me a bit, but she said, I had seen these types of blowout arguments on Jerry Springer, but I always thought they were scripted. I never imagined that they happened in real life. And that is one of the, it's a very common thing that I hear is that people just feel like I thought this stuff was made up until I'm in it. And I have, I've witnessed these in my office and, and I, you know, I, I don't want those to continue. Or people will read text exchanges with the emotionally mature narcissist and uh, they just go around in circles. And sometimes even when I just am hearing people say, and then I said, and then she said, or I said, and then he said, and I just think I, I can't even follow this right now. I can't even imagine what that's like. And if that's the person that you are in a relationship with. She gave another, again, she said that Diane ended up in this collateral damage and she became a victim of the narcissistic ex. The verbal abuse, the screaming, the name calling. And she said, and then it escalated into physical violence and throwing things until the cops were called. She said, I was so shocked. I couldn't physically move. My friend was eventually emotionally beaten down. And then the ex started attacking me and I just felt powerless. And then when I tried to leave, the person hid my keys and I was literally forced to stay there and continue to take the abuse. I felt as if I wasn't physically there, but just watching what was going on as if she had disassociated. She said, Diane still experiences flashbacks and high levels of anxiety from the event. And it happened months ago. But when she went back to the home where the argument happened, she physically and emotionally reacted. Diane's fight, flight or freeze reaction was initiated by both memories of the event and the physical reminder of the location. And she went on to say, I can't physically be in that location. I can't. I walk in the door and it's as if I'm back there and as if I never left that day. And that the ex is there behind a door waiting to start screaming again and throwing things. She said, my heart races. I find myself in a cold sweat and I just cannot relax. Everything floods back. I've explained many times to my friend that I cannot be in that house. But she doesn't understand because to her, that fight was par for the course. I didn't even know the ex. It was the second time I'd ever even seen the ex, but I still became the target. And she said, I've never experienced that kind of vitriol and abuse and it haunts me to this day. Other emotional signs, uh, Christy Lee says, emotional manifestations are invisible and often longer lasting than physical signs of trauma recovery. Individuals who are suffering from narcissistic trauma may find themselves with high levels of mistrust, hopelessness about the future, and a significant loss of self-esteem and sense of who they are as a person. So the abuse from a narcissist will eventually cause the victim, whether it's first or second degree, to feel emotionally out of control and unstable. The negative memories and painful flashbacks, they will overpower any semblance of goodness. So depression, languishing, and general disinterest in life can start to become the norm. And that's where it just kills me because that person's emotional baseline becomes so low that they can't access the tools of recovery at all. So that's where they don't even want to get out of bed. They don't want to do any self-care, not even watch a show or go on a walk or pet a dog when any bit of self-care, any raising of your emotional baseline is better than just continuing to sit and, and ruminate and worry. She said in addition to an eating disorder, Brie also developed the an inability to leave the home she previously shared with her abuser. 
She said, for the the most part, I didn't leave my house for four months and I had a, I had to a few times and each time I did, it came with a panic attack. Brie was convinced that the inner turmoil she was feeling was etched all over her face. She said, I felt like everybody could see the pain on my face and, and just know exactly what happened. I was constantly terrified. The only thing that helped Brie's recovery was leaving her narcissist partner and moving back to her childhood hometown. She said, I had become a shell of my old self. And then Diane echoes the loss of self. She said, I became this hypersensitive, mistrusting, anxious child. She said, and, and I know better. I know who I am. But in that moment, being emotionally and figuratively ripped apart, I ceased to exist. So throughout the entire thing, my friend became a stranger to me. They turned into this completely different person than who they are with me. They couldn't come to my defense or help me or even look in my direction. So then, and it can also manifest itself as a lack of memories or an overabundance of negative memories. That's another one of the common side effects of narcissistic abuse. During marriage counseling, the therapist asked me and my now ex-wife to write down our favorite memories together, recalls Jackson. He said, I couldn't write down one happy thing, just everything negative that led us to that point. And we weren't always unhappy, but I had nothing. Emotional abuse, Christy Lee goes on to say, is especially long-term abuse can alter memories and distort them. Trauma can cause flashbacks, unwanted thoughts about the person or situation, and it can even cause gaps in memory. My favorite concept of confabulation. She told a story, she said, Layla spent over 10 years with her narcissistic partner and their two children. My therapist has asked if I had any clear memories of the time, she said. I have very few memories of when the kids were little or my pregnancy with them. I was basically just trying to survive each day. Everything's fuzzy. And then hopelessness is another key sign of traumatic abuse. But unfortunately, it is one that can be hard to overcome. I was with a wonderful man, but I couldn't reflect the emotional attacks from his ex any longer, says Olivia, who was forced to end her relationship because of a narcissistic abuser. He could not break free of her abuser. And that abuse trickled down to me. And you can't prove emotional abuse in court or to a police officer. There was no recourse. I became depressed and anxious. We discussed marriage, but I couldn't be in a marriage made up of three people, especially one who was so evil. She said I had no hope for the future. Bree recognizes this feeling when facing the fallout from her abuser. She said I felt everything was hopeless. So narcissists, unfortunately, do not allow the possibility of hope. And being unable to fight a narcissist does not mean you are weak. Instead, it means that you are human. And the narcissist, and this is from Christy Lee, she says, is inhuman. Only a person devoid of empathy and emotion can consistently attack and tear down another human being without losing sleep. A normal person cannot keep up the abuse or the charade without breaking down. Can one recover from emotional trauma? Yeah, but unfortunately not without probably some scars or some lingering effects. The only person unaffected is the narcissist. So I just felt like that was such a powerful article talking about trauma. And I know this stuff can be difficult, but if you're still listening to this episode, it's because I would imagine you've maybe been the person that has been on the receiving end of some of this emotional abuse from the narcissist or the emotionally immature. So if that is the case, again, thanks for listening. And, and just know that just getting information and, and gathering and collecting data is part of the road to recovery. Even if that is all that you're able to do right now, it is, it is taking action. It's doing something. It's starting to, even if it's to change the, the interior or internal landscape of what it feels like to be you. And the more that you do that, the more that your body is going to go through a lot of change and change in the way of, 
of the more that you learn, you'll have times where you just can't get enough of this information. You'll feel so validated and, and just feel so much, maybe even hope at times where it's like, okay, I, I feel like I, I'm starting to understand. But then you may take that that hope and then take it into a conversation with a narcissist or emotionally immature person and then feel gas lit up a storm and leave it and say, man, okay, maybe, well, what am I thinking? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm crazy. And so sometimes that, that yo-yo of the, I'm, I think I can do this and, and then who am I fooling? It, it can be really uh, exhausting and it's part of the journey. So if you have questions about today's episode, if you have stories, if you have haikus or poems or anything that you want to share, please feel free to send them to contact at tonyoverbay.com. And I still would love to see people reach out if they want to find themselves in the men's or women's group online. And then I also appreciate all those who have uh, signed up, supported, and and are throwing a little uh, little money toward the Waking Up the Narcissism Premium Question and Answer podcast because those finances, that money is going to help people who can't afford the help that are stuck in these um, emotionally abusive or narcissistic relationships. So have an amazing week and I will see you next time on Waking Up to Narcissism. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.